Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. If you could stand, we'll begin in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Amen. Stay in and forgive us our trespasses. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Our speaker, our speaker this evening received a Master's of Arts degree from Dallas University and his licentiate and doctorate doctoral degrees in sacred theology from the John Paul II Institute in Washington. In 1977, Dr. Marshner became a founding faculty member at Christendom College and served continuously as professor of theology until his retirement in 2015. A well-known author and Protestant convert to the Catholic Church, Dr. Marshner has lectured widely on topics ranging from Islam to the heresy of modernism. Uh, he and his wife live in beautiful uh, Front Royal, Virginia. He's a regular presenter at the Institute, and we are delighted to welcome him back. Please welcome back the great forked beard, Dr. William Marshner. Thank you, O Deacon. I'm still, yes, that's fine. I'm still a deacon, too. I'm a deacon. That's right. Very good. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our Seat of wisdom, Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I have been assigned a pair of topics tonight, which have almost nothing to do with one another. One is relics and the other is indulgences, okay? The only common, well, the main common link between them is that Luther protested against both, okay? So at the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, there was a sharp turn in the churches of Northern Europe against relics on the one hand and indulgences on the other. And I'm going to start by talking about the relics, okay? The word relic is, in Greek, it's just the ordinary word for remains. Likewise, in Latin, reliquia and lepsana. And you may recall, if you're reading the New Testament in Greek, when they took up 12 baskets from the feeding of the 5,000, those were five baskets of leftovers, lepsana. Remains, leftovers, that was the ordinary use of the word. It then uh, was 
narrowed down to a more sacred and ecclesiastical usage. And that usage goes way back. Now let me see if there is someone here tonight who has a Bible. All right. I shall need an official lector. I will give you a verse. The lector will look it up and read it to us all. I want you to start with 2 Kings chapter 13 and verse 21. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was cast into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. All right. There you are. It was an accidental thing, right? They weren't looking for a shrine or anything like that. They weren't expecting any miracles. They were going to bury a man. A raiding party comes by. They chuck the corpse into an already open grave. Well, it happened to be the grave of the prophet Elisha. And what do you know? God worked a miracle through the body of his prophet. That man was brought back to life. All right? It isn't only flesh and bones that can work miracles through the power of God if they once belonged to a holy person. Let's hear about the mantle of Elijah. 2 Kings chapter 12. No, sorry, chapter 2. 2 Kings 2.14. Then he took the coat of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck that water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elijah went over. Yes. The prophet wanted to cross the river. He had the, the old cloak coat of his predecessor, the prophet Elijah, with him. And... Uh, Suddenly a thought came into his head, and he struck the river with the coat, and once again, a miracle like the parting of the Red Sea took place. This time, not through part of Elijah's body, but through a garment that used to belong to him. Okay. It shouldn't be surprising to us, therefore, if in the New Testament, God also pleases to work miracles through mere clothing of a holy person. You remember um, Matthew chapter 9, don't you? Verses 20 to 21, that woman with the issue of blood. She thought to herself, if I can only touch his cloak, I'll be healed, all right? And when our Lord perceived that power had gone out from him, he didn't turn around and say, now confound it, woman, don't you know better than such superstition? Clothes can't hail you. Clothes don't make the man. That cloak doesn't do any good. You just touch my cloak. That's nothing. No, he did not do any such thing. He praised her faith. Okay. Because I suppose our Lord remembered the story of Elijah's mantle. Yes. And it doesn't even have to be a material garment. 
Peter's shadow is in Acts 5. Peter was walking by. Peter's shadow only had to pass over these people. And by their faith, through the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, they were healed. And now we have a, a, a relic story, if there ever was one, from Acts 19, verse 12. Paul had been preaching, yes? And um, he had done a number of healings. And um, after he preached, napkins or handkerchiefs or something were taken away from his body, on which he had no doubt worked up a bit of perspiration. You know how it is with preaching. It costs sweat. Uh, uh, St. Paul had been touching these napkins and uh, handkerchiefs. And at the insistence of the people there, those cloths were borne home by them. Okay? Give us, give us, give us this stuff. That they could take the blessing home with them. Ain't it so? It's a magnificent testimony to the faith of the first generation of Christian converts. You see the same kind of hope for the power of God to work in one's life when you come down, just, a, just about a half a century, really, to the martyrdoms of uh, St. Ignatius and St. Polycarp. No, it's a, it's a full century. About 150, yes? At the funeral, well, well St. Ignatius was, was taken in chains across Asia Minor to Rome, where he was tried for refusing to sacrifice to Caesar and so on. He was thrown into the um, eh, amphitheater with the beasts. He had prayed, by the way, that the beasts would chew him up completely so that there wouldn't be any of his body left to be a burden on anybody. He welcomed the, the, the lions as grinding his flesh as the bread of God is ground in the Eucharist. Not beautiful. Anyway, people uh, came out and rescued bits of bone and so on from the lions in the case of St. Ignatius, who had been Bishop of Antioch, arrested in that city, carried to Rome under armed guard, and fed to the lions. People found bits and pieces of his bones. And those, what happened to those bones? They were prized taken up, carried back to Antioch, and given solemn burial in honor of the holy confessor, well, martyr in this case, to whom they had belonged. And before long, we have reports of miracles from uh, resting places like that of the bones of martyrs 
We have a similar situation uh, just a few years later at the martyrdom of Polycarp. Now, the Romans got smart. This is interesting. The devotion of the first generation of Catholic people to the relics of the apostles and the martyrs was so great that the Roman authorities quickly realized they could not leave these remnants around. So they started burning them. Okay, So the Christians couldn't grab hold of these relics. All right, that's what happened to the body of St. Polycarp. Not only was he killed, but then his body was burned. Okay, well, it takes more than a little fire to completely defeat the zeal of Christians in Asia Minor in 150 AD, 156, whatever year it was exactly, 156, I think. Took more than a little uh, cleverness, but they, they found fragments of bone and they gathered up ashes. Okay. And put them in silk and gold vessels and carried them away to a place where they could be properly honored. Now, there was a reason that I saluted our dear uh, Father Hezekiah earlier this evening as a deacon because this is a great night on which to hear a deacon story. It was some decades before the year 304, so this is 200 and something, when a deacon named Euplus, E-U-P-L-U-S, Euplus. Nice name for a boy, think about it, Euplus. He was martyred in Italy and buried, and no sooner was he put in a place of rest than people started being healed by coming to his tomb. Okay? Miracles, healings, ends of diseases, magnificent record of miracles from Deacon Euplus. So, you see, even Sabatino has hope. <laughs> I want to tell you a story about an early Christian who behaved like a great many modern Catholics whose behavior is greatly frowned upon by learned and Protestant people. This was a matron in the city of Carthage who um, was um, visiting mass, taking, attending mass during the time of the persecution under the emperor Diocletian. And they had some uh, remains of martyrs somewhere near where the communion line passed. And she was observed to bend over and kiss the remains of the martyrs before she went up to the, the, the altar, the communion rail, whatever, to, to receive our Lord's body. Well, 
Did anybody fuss about this? Yes. Yes. Her bishop laid her out. You know why? Because she'd kissed relics of a martyr? No, that wasn't the problem. The problem was this particular martyr hadn't been approved yet by the church. Okay. You don't kiss his bones till I say they're kissable, <laughs> said the bishop. Well, we understand the leaders of the church needed to keep, needed to keep some kind of check on, uh, you know, um, ill-founded devotion. But I think this matron of Carthage, this is about the year 220, is a splendid example for all those lovely old ladies in our churches, lovely old ladies whom liberal priests hate <laughs> because they're devoted to things like relics. We have a, well, I have a sermon by St. Maximus of Turin, but I'm not going to quote it. I have too much to get through tonight. Instead, I'm going to hasten on to the first real critic of the devotion of the early Christians towards the relics of the saints and martyrs. The first real criticism surfaced in the year 403, okay? Not 103, not 203, 403. Hundreds of years <coughs> veneration have gone on before anybody says, hey, wait, this not right. Well, the fellow who finally objected was a priest with a wonderful name, Father Vigilantius. <laughs> he fancied himself a vigilante of orthodoxy. Father Vigilantius in 403, he's in the, he's in the um, Diocese of Toulouse, which, as you probably know, is a uh, town in the south of France. Well, he made the mistake of saying that this veneration of surviving body parts of martyrs and so on was idolatry. Idolatry. This remark, oh, oh, you know why he said this? Why was it idolatry? Because he saw people like that old lady in Carthage. People would kiss the relics. I don't, I don't, I don't know. Where did this idea come from? That you only kiss what you worship? Huh? I'm sorry, I don't worship my wife. <laughs> Kissing is just a sign of veneration, not worship. You know what I mean? But for Father Vigilantius, this was idolatry, and the kissing was the proof of it. They were, she was adoring that stuff and just worshiping and getting all oozy about it. Well, unfortunately, Father Vigilantius' remarks were reported to St. Jerome. 
Now, St. Jerome, some of you may know, was able to write a book with a very sharp tongue. <laughs> he just cut Vigilantius up one side and down the other in a little book called Against Vigilantius. <laughs> in which... Um, he said, well, are we idolaters when we enter into the churches of the apostles? Is the Emperor Constantine an idolater also who arranged the transferal of relics of St. Andrew and St. Luke and St. Timothy to Constantinople? Let me uh, interrupt the quote there for a minute. Constantine had a problem because he founded this nice new capital over there on the Bosporus. Well, because it was a new capital, it didn't have any old churches in it that had relics of the martyrs or anything in them. So uh, Constantine thought he'd get busy to glorify his new capital, make it a place of uh, pilgrimage and whatnot. So he arranged for the transfer of relics from St. Timothy and others from wherever they had been before to Constantinople. Anyway, it was a sign of devotion to those relics, and St. Jerome says, okay, Vigilantius, you think the emperor's an idolater? When you get close to these holy bodies, Watch the demons blush. And they show what they feel, even the demons, in the presence of these saints. So the authority of God is engaged in these great manifestations. All the bishops, continues St. Jerome, all the bishops, are they idolaters too? They were there for the transferal of the relics? Are they idolaters too? Huh? You should regard them that well, in fact, you should regard them as madmen for having carried vile things, cinders and so on, in cloths of silk and vases of gold. Madcap, likewise, are the people of all of the churches who come before the holy relics and receive them with great joy as if they had seen a prophet in the flesh. Oh, well, you think these saints are dead. And now it's you who is blaspheming, oh, vigilantius says St. Jerome. Now it's you who are blaspheming. Read the gospel. The God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living, says Jerome. This text, which is uh, Matthew twenty-two thirty-two, doesn't prove absolutely the power of relics, but it proves 
that the people whose relics they are are not dead. They are alive. They are in heaven with our Lord and can exercise his power even through the remains of their bodies. Well, this is the faith that was handed down all through the Middle Ages, led to um, a magnificent efflorescence of devotion to the bodies of the saints. By the way, the West did not originate the custom of dividing the bodies up. Hand over here, a foot over there. It was the Eastern Church <laughs> that invented that because you had so many cities in the East and so few relics to go around. So yeah, give, give, give part of him to this town, part to that town, and everybody will be happy. Because, as St. Jerome also observed, and so did St. John Chrysostom, although the body is divided, the soul and the power of God are not. Wherever a part of that body is, the whole power of God can work. And so can the soul of the deceased. Yes. Deceased for this world's purpose. Well, I mean, after all, the days on which we celebrate, the feast days of the martyrs, are not their birthdays in the modern sense of the word, but the date of their being put to death. In the ancient church, that was their real birthday. That's when they came alive unto heaven. Okay. Never mind birth in this world, that's all very nice. But the real birthday is the entry into heaven. All right, I could go on in this vein. I have many, many, many things to report. A lovely letter of Pope Hormisdus to the Emperor Justinian, for example. Justinian, the greatest of the Byzantine emperors and probably the most powerful single human being in his day, he sent a letter to the Pope in Rome, Hormisdus, saying, um, <clears throat> I've got this nice new church I built here. Hello, Hagia Sophia. I need a good relic. I want you to send me the head of St. Paul. Well, no use asking for a little. If you're an emperor, you ask for a lot. The Pope wrote back to him and said, we don't do that here in the West. We, we, we don't, no, we, we, we don't touch the bodies or divide them or anything. But I'll tell you what I can do. I can send you some filings from his chains. And that's what Justinian had to be contented with. Filings from his chains. And in that same letter, Pope Hormisdus said, now don't think that amounts to nothing. And I'll tell you a story that goes back to the time of my uh, predecessor of great memory, Pope St. Leo. Our custom here in, uh, in the West is not to divide the bodies, but to take cloths and touch them to the bodies, then fold up the claws and put them in a wooden box or a gold vessel and send them to a church that needs a relic or where somebody's being consecrated or something like that. Here's what uh, happened when 
some people thought that those wrapped up claws and so on weren't worth anything as relics. And eh, come on, that's, that's not a finger, that's not a real relic. Well, uh, Pope Leo uh, decided to uh, test the matter. An empirical-minded man. So he took one of those packets, having in it claws from the body of a martyr. Got himself, uh, had a deacon bring him a pair of scissors. Cut the corner off the packet, linen packet. And it bled. Yes. Yes, it bled. So, this is the kind of faith that St. Leo the Great had, because I don't think it would have bled for me necessarily. <laughs> but, you know, where faith is, God can work and miracles abound. Now then, what have I done with my time tonight? I have practically exhausted it, and I didn't mean to do that because I did want to say a whole lot about indulgences. And now I'm not going to get to say nearly as much as I liked, would have liked. But I'm going to begin where just about everybody begins the story about indulgences and the controversy over indulgences. I'm in the month of January in 1517. That was the year in which a Dominican priest named Johannes Tetzel began preaching an indulgence. It was a brand new indulgence, had never been preached up before. It had just been granted by the Pope to a guy named Albert of Brandenburg. Albert of Brandenburg had just become Archbishop of Mayence. He had other sees before, but he was now a big, big wheel. And uh, he needed um, uh, churches to get built. And so he asked the Pope to give him the right to give indulgences in return for alms. They'll go towards building these churches. Okay? Pope at the time was Leo X. Leo X said, fine. And um, Albert of Brandenburg sent Johannes Tetzel to preach around Germany this new indulgence. Okay. What did Father Tetzel have to say? Well, I think this is the story about indulgences that everybody knows. I remember when I was a kid, every year we had Reformation Sunday in an armory in, uh, in Baltimore. We'd all, we'd all go sing and, uh, you know, a mighty... <laughs> uh, never mind. We, 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 we would all go sing the great old Lutheran hymns, and we would see a little movie about indulgences. And there would be Tetzel, fat, German, Dominican, with his little uh, rhyme. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. <laughs> And, needless to say, Luther didn't take long to start protesting this particular message. 
By the way, Luther wasn't alone to protest it. That kind of theology had already been condemned by the theological faculty at Sorbonne University, University of Paris, 30 years earlier. In 1483, the idea that as soon as a contribution is given, a soul gets out of it, that was condemned. Okay? So Tetzel was way off base theologically. And by the way, don't get the idea that um, uh, requiring alms in return for an indulgence was always a bad idea or that all the money went to make fancy churches. Did you know that bridges all over Europe were built with the alms from indulgences? Roads were built with the alms from indulgences. Um, walls, fortifications. The dikes in Holland were repaired with the income, the alms given in indulgences. Now, why did they think of that in St. Louis? Um, no, no, no. In New Orleans. That's where they needed to have a dike repaired a brief while ago. Better you should rely on income from alms than that you should rely on the honesty of Louisiana politicians. <laughs> anyway, no, alms had been put to lots of wonderful uses. Houses of charity and hospitals and everything had been built with these alms. It wasn't just fancy oratories or something. No, 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 no. So that's why there was not much objection. There was no objection when Albert of Brandenburg said, I'm going to put up some things that you grant me an indulgence, power to issue these indulgences. The Pope said, yeah, okay, go ahead. But he would certainly not have approved and never did approve Tetzel's message. And, needless to say, Luther made his own descent famous on Halloween of 1517. That was the night he nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg. And one of those theses was about indulgences. He claimed that uh, you know, an indulgence couldn't possibly be any use for anybody in purgatory because it was just a remission of a canonical penalty effective only in the external forum. And Luther went on to say that the Pope could only exempt with an indulgence people from the penalties he himself had imposed. Whereas at that point, Luther was not quarreling yet with the view that the Pope is the overall manager of the church and, um, you know, can um, arrange things to his satisfaction with respect to canonical penalties for sins. Well, I have to stop here a minute because canonical penalty is a word which, I don't know, has practically disappeared from the modern Catholic mind. 
serving the modern American mind. A canonical penalty was a punishment you had to undergo for committing a sin. But wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Didn't you go to confession? Confess, and the blood of Christ would cover your sin? And that would be the end of it? And the answer was, that takes away the guilt of the sin. Okay, You're not going to go to hell for it. But your sins are never free of harm to the whole church. Okay? When you sin, you don't only damage yourself, destroy a virtue or two or something like that. When you sin, you also injure the whole Christian people by bad example and whatnot. And so, when you sin, you owe okay, a punishment. You have to undergo a punishment. This is called retributive justice. Again, many people these days don't believe in retributive justice. They think the only reason to send somebody to prison is that it's kind of like a medical treatment. No. They go to prison because they darn well deserve to be there. And even if we treat them pretty nice behind bars, the fact is they're not there voluntarily. They don't want to be there. They're there because they deserve to be there. Loss of their freedom of motion is a punishment. It's a whole lot nicer than chopping off hands, but it's a punishment. Yes. But all right, um, um, the church didn't chop off hands ever. But the church used to set canonical penalties for various classes of sins. You can find out all about it in the books about uh, the martyrs, the persecutions, behavior of Christians under the persecutions, and then in books about um, uh, the penances that were to be done if you had fallen into some sort of sin. We have a whole library of those books called penitential books from all over Europe. And um, they prescribed how many months you had to live on bread and water if you committed this sin. How many months have you committed that sin? How many prayers you had to say if you committed some other sin? Okay. And the, 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 the canonical penalties could be pretty severe. Back in the day of my beloved St. Cyprian of Carthage, who, by the way, consented to be martyred himself in the year 251. He didn't, he didn't have to be. He, he, he could have run away. He'd gotten out of town. He came back to, to, uh, to, to go through it. And there's a lovely story connected with that. I can't resist telling it. Um, St. Cyprian arrived with a deacon at the place where they were doing the executions if you didn't offer the sacrifices. And uh, he, they are, he and his deacon arrived in great haste. And this is, Car- this is, Af- this is Northern Africa. And so St. Cyprian was all in a sweat. And there was a soldier at the door of the prison who said, uh, oh, uh, Your Excellency, why don't you give me those sopping wet clothes? Here, take these nice dry clothes. Okay? 
Cyprian's thinking, hmm, that soldier's a Christian. He wants some relics out of this. So he said, no, thank you, son. Very kind of you, I'm sure. But um, my uh, discomfort is a very small melody from which I shall be cured by this evening. Anyway, nice joke with which to go to the next life. Back in the day of St. Cyprian, for example, if you hadn't uh, if you hadn't been martyred when martyrdom was in the offing for you, okay, like, for example, the, the prosecutorial team from the emperor had come to town and all the Christians had to be rounded up, suspected Christians rounded up and forced to sacrifice. And if they didn't sacrifice, they had their necks shortened. Okay? Well, a lot of people got scared. And rather than die, they said, eh, what's a little incense already? Put two grains on the altar, I'll get out of this. These were called the people who had sacrificed to, uh, they'd fallen by making the sacrifice. The other kind of people were cleverer. They knew somebody. They knew whose palm to grease to get taken off the list. Okay? And you can imagine it's very simple. Come here, come here. Focius, come over here. Uh, I, I know you could use a little money. And you're not going to get anything out of, uh, out of this execution. <laughs> Nothing in it for you. But I can make it worth your while to take my name off the list. Ooh. Okay? So that's what you had to do. You get find a, a Roman official who wanted a little bribe. You got off the execution list. And uh, you were called a libellatus because you got a little book, a libellus, that said, oh, so-and-so made the due sacrifice. So, if you had gotten out of a persecution by making the sacrifice, or even by getting the libellus, buying your way out, you could not approach the table of communion again for maybe at least three years. Okay, that was the least. You would be on bread and water for three years, and you would be in a serious regime of daily prayer and penitential practices. Yes. Now, I have often said to myself, whatever became of penances like that? <laughs> The little tiny penances we get from going to confession at mass, I mean, in, in church, are the tiny, 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 tiny remnants of that. Three years on bread and water, I forget that. Three, say three Hail Marys. Right! No wonder nobody has this idea of canonical penalties anymore. They don't seem serious. But they used to be very, 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 very serious. And that's where Luther got the idea that um, indulgences were never anything but sort of um, uh, dismissals of the full 
canonical penalty do? So, for example, suppose you had uh, saved your life by, uh, yeah, two grains of incense, big deal. Then you found that you were excluded from the church because you practiced idolatry. Oh, heck, I just didn't want to die, that's all. So you go to the bishop and you say, oh, bishop, I'm so sorry. I want to be back in church. All my friends are in church. The bishop will say, well, let's see. Let's see if you can stand a diet of bread and water for three years. And let's see if you can say 15 uh, lengthy prayers per day and so on. And uh, so let's suppose the guy does that. He's very good at it for a year. He sticks to it. He comes back to the bishop. I've been an exemplary penitent. Bishop, please, can you just let me off in the last two years? And in individual cases, the bishop would say, well, I guess you've shown your goodwill. So, all right. Now, Luther admitted that a bishop could do that or that a pope could do that. Remission of a canonical penalty. Okay. But he didn't think there was anything supernatural about this business of remitting temporal penalties due for sin. And he certainly didn't think that um, indulgences would have any effect in the next life. By the way, be careful when you start confessing orthodoxy about this. Do not utter the idea that the Pope has jurisdiction over souls in purgatory. That's a heresy. Nobody ever believed that. And also, nobody ever believed that the coin ringing in the coffer would free the soul. Okay? What all the theologians said from the beginning was, look, an indulgence is only a remission of temporal penalties, yes, and all it can do to someone who's already passed this life is have the effect of saying a prayer for him or her. Okay? An indulgence works per modum suffragii, the way a prayer would work. Now then, if you thought your old man was in purgatory, which is very likely, but if you, if you thought your old man was in purgatory, would you feel bad about offering a prayer for him? No. No. Don't know if he'll do much good, but can offer it. No problem. It's a charitable thought, I guess, anyway. And, uh, oh, by the way, the nice thing about praying for somebody else is you don't even have to be in a state of grace to do it. Yeah. Sure. You're in sin, you can still pray for somebody else. Might help you get out of sin. Anyway, not a problem. The, the uh, indulgence in for persons in purgatory only worked the way a prayer would work. Okay? And the church has explicitly taught, you have got no guarantee about what God's response will be. You know, you can, you can bank on it, that thanks to the merits of Christ, the whole mystical body of the church, 
The indulgence will do your grandfather some good. But you don't know that he will be released from purgatory instantly or anything like that. Okay? Some good, yeah. Instant good, forget it. You don't know that. Because even the Pope does not control the response of God to the prayers of the saints, for heaven's sake. So when you, when you study, you know, the doctrine of the indulgences carefully, it, it's not so crazy at all. It's not so bad. And um, there are about 3,000 questions I haven't even touched on. <laughs> but I think I've said all I have time for, and then some. And so I am going to remove my by now detestable presence from before your eyes. Thank you very much. Dr. Marshner, is there a quote from the New Testament that says alms cover a multitude of sins? No, it says charity covers a multitude of sins. And alms are one way of showing charitable love towards a neighbor, which is why we call it charity, which is originally a Catholic word. It means the kind of love with which you love God. With all the numerous biblical scriptural references <coughs> you gave for relics, can you make a statement of why in modern Protestantism there would be such uh, opposition to veneration of relics? It's um, um, <clears throat> a recrudescence of the mindset of Father Vigilantius. Um, when Protestants see people venerating relics, they think they're worshiping them. And similarly, uh, when they see people venerating a statue, they think they're worshiping the statue. If you have been brought up without, uh, with no exposure to devotional practices of that kind, you know, you, you, you automatically think, well, the person is worshiping that thing, bowing down to it, kneeling in front of it. Well, one of the reasons Protestants have such a, um, an uninformed view of what amounts to worship, and hence amounts to idolatry, is because <clears throat> uh, in their experience, worship is just praise. It's just praise and music. They call that a worship service. Okay? But in biblical perspective, perspective, the test is sacrifice. You worship that to which you offer a sacrifice. Okay? This is why all of our masses are offered to God and not to the saint whose commemoration we're keeping that day. There are no masses offered to St. Peter or St. Paul or St. Dymphna or whoever. All masses are sacrifices unto God, repeating in a new time and a new place the one perfect sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, until fairly recently, uh, the church didn't want any uh, cremations and right. such, and, and, and still they're very strict about what to do with the ashes and definitely can't scatter them. Right. Okay, so... Why is it okay then to have 
various body pieces all over the place of the saints? <clears throat> the the the, um, the body of the saint was not turned to ashes to spread it around. Okay, the saint was just burned as part of his execution. Um, God, of course, being omnipotent can gather up whatever fragments there are of you from anywhere. Eaten by a crocodile, God can find something of you. Eaten by piranha fish, God can find... Never mind. Um, um, but the primitive Christian discipline was to think of death more like going to sleep. That's why we called our graveyards dormitories. That's what the word cemeterium means in Greek. It's a dormitory. Okay. And you're going to be asleep for a while. But then you're going to awaken to eternal life. Um, you shouldn't have, you know, you shouldn't want to turn yourself into ashes or be turned into ashes unless you think you're never going to come back to life. That's why the church has always frowned on it. Nowadays, um, there's some more tolerance for the practice, provided the ashes aren't scattered. Some more tolerance for it because we're running out of graves, grave sites. Um, so, uh, but, but, but um, scattering the ashes uh, is not taking a handful to this town so they can keep the handful, handful to that. It's throwing them into the air so that the wind just blows it away. Because you think you're showing, oh, there's nothing left of that guy. Big mistake. The one whose ashes you have scattered will uh, be around again in due time, in the Lord's good time. Yes? All right. Thank you all very much. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.